Welcome to Care Captains, the podcast where Norbert Farkas has candid conversations with visionary healthcare leaders. Explore the projects, hurdles, and triumphs in disease prevention, diagnosis, and cure. Join us for a masterclass in healthcare innovation for well-being. Welcome to the very first episode of Care Captains. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Joan Mandeville as our guest. In this episode, we will get to hear Joan's personal story following his journey through different stages of diverse career. John has worn many hats. He has been a doctor, a PhD student, a consultant, and a known expert in the fields of health economics and outcomes research. Join us as we explore John's rich career path, which includes working at well-known companies such as Bayer, Roche, Takeda, UCB, and recently Farvaris. We will discover the deep understanding and knowledge he has acquired from his long experience working in the evidence planning and generation. Joan likes to describe his role as a fruit salad, a colorful and diverse mixture representing his wide range of responsibilities and the many different people and organizations he interacts with, including important regulatory agencies like the FDA. But Joan's work goes beyond conducting clinical trials. He cares deeply for the individuals who are at the heart of research on rare diseases, always aiming to understand them better and to prioritize their well-being. Joan promotes a kind of understanding approach to conducting clinical trials, which considers the human side of the participants. We will also travel with Joan as he shares his personal journey moving from Colombia to Spain and then to Switzerland. Through his story, we will witness the beautiful experiences he has gathered from living in different cultures, emphasizing the value of diversity in enriching one's life. As we conclude, John will share his valuable insights in leadership, emphasizing the vital roles of trust, openness, and being service-oriented. He highlights the concept of mindful kindness as the cornerstone for building teams that work well together and foster harmony and efficiency. Thank you for joining us, Joan, and welcome to Care Captains. Joan, welcome to the podcast. I'm really happy to have you here. And as I mentioned to you, this is a test recording. Thanks for being the guinea pig. Well, first of all, thanks for for giving me the chance to to be, you know, the this first attempt uh, to build this important uh, and a nice initiative, Norbert. Thank you very much. My first question to you is: Why did you became a doctor? Why did you go to medical university? I studied medicine in, in Bogota, in Colombia. I am a physician, but uh, now, in in hindsight, my time in clinical practices or was the shortest part of my whole career <laughs> compared to, to all the rest now. And then um, I think after medical university, you came to the industry. Why did you decide? Yeah, that is a very good question. How it happened was that um, when I was finishing med school, um, my university signed an agreement with Novartis in Colombia. So they created some sort of uh, clinical research fellowship. And also back in the day, I uh, I volunteered to be the guinea pig for, for that program. Uh, so I was the, the first one going there to Novartis for one year. And, um, and that is how I got acquainted with the pharmaceutical industry. I had the, I, I was really lucky. I had two mentors and, uh, and they said, Hey, Joan, don't, don't try to do what we, what we do. Don't, don't, don't become a medical advisor. Try to differentiate yourself. 
There is something that is called outcomes research and also something that is called pharmacoeconomics. We are sure that that is going to be important in the years to come. That was uh, the piece of advice that they give me. And then I think that I tried to, you know, to build little by little that, um, that path. Um, but uh, of course, in between many, many things happened. Fantastic. So you already got acquainted with outcomes research, health economics uh, back in the early 2000s. How has been this journey so far? It was not, uh, you know, uh, all perfect uh, from the beginning. So I knew that I had to first um, demonstrate that I had the competencies. So I, that's why I went to Barcelona to do a PhD in public health, but uh, focused on patient reported outcomes. Um, and at the same time, I finished a master's degree in health economics and pharmacoeconomics. And uh, after that, I spent a couple of years um, doing research, health services research. And then finally, I moved into the private sector uh, initially as a consultant in, in a space that was more about um, if you want hospital management and uh, that was quite interesting and from there i went to what today is acuvia back in the day was called ims so i i joined the team of, of uh, yeah folks doing health economics outcomes research back in the day and after that i finally joined bayer in the local operating company in Spain. So between the moment I received the um, the advice uh, from my mentors in Bogota until the moment I finally made it to the uh, pharmaceutical industry, I had a 10 year path until I was given the, the chance, the opportunity to join the pharmaceutical industry. It looks really fast on paper, but uh, definitely it was a long journey and you started in the research side, then you went into the applied uh, clinical practice as well. You moved to consulting, then after you ended up in the industry. So when you have a look at this outcomes research field and health economics in these early years of your career, what were these key differences what you have experienced in these different settings? It was it was very different um, when I was in the public health agency of Barcelona, for instance. Uh, it was economic evaluation was about public health interventions. So, and and that is like a different perspective. It was uh, I I remember that we uh, did this analysis about what was the the actual the societal economic benefit of having uh, traffic lights, uh, speed radars in Barcelona. But uh, when actually you um, quantify what is the societal effect of that, it is huge. When I was uh, rather at IMS, it was more used, of course, to support the value proposition of uh, rare diseases. I still remember the, the uh, pivotal trials of Eculizumab. And so, yes, I, I was behind uh, a team of folks trying to substantiate the value proposition of uh, of such an expensive intervention and uh, and it was very interesting because of course it was as usual in rare diseases uh, data is uh, subpar compared to what you would like to have in terms of um, 
you know, the length of observation. Uh, health economics provides, you know, the, the, the tools that you need to perform those analyses regardless where you sit. Um, now, outcomes research, that is a different animal if you want. Patient-reported outcome measures um, collected as part of clinical practice, it's all about making them practical in reality because the problem of, of doctors is that they don't have time. They don't have time. So if they are to collect additional information, it has to be in a practical way. Whereas when it's about the to hit the bar of regulators, oftentimes PROs are exactly the opposite. They are super complex and um, and the regulators oftentimes uh, want uh, the PROs to fulfill a number of characteristics that uh, make them not necessarily practical. Very insightful. And I already realized that we jumped into the challenges of outcomes research. For a non-expert audience, how would you define outcomes research and maybe what are these key activities, what you do in your daily job? So in layman words, I would say it has to do with all the characteristics of interventions, you name it, drugs, devices, healthcare interventions like prescribe uh, physical activity to someone, that is also an intervention. Um, and, and to actually quantify in an objective way, what are the elements from that intervention that go beyond what is intended to achieve? Meaning, if you give a drug to someone who has a hypertension to lower their blood pressure, that is the intended. What is beyond lowering the, the blood pressure? That is the variable that you would uh, quantify with outcomes research. Meaning, in addition to lowering the blood pressure, is that particular person experiencing higher levels of happiness, of well-being, uh, quality of life, or any other um, characteristic or concept similar to, to this that I just mentioned? So you see that it is about quantifying all the different aspects beyond probably the intended aim of, of an intervention. Very illustrative explanation. And I previously picked up already that you mentioned uh, rare diseases and outcomes research. So the first question would be, how did you end up in rare diseases? Was that a conscious journey? Maybe your previous um, uh, companies were specialized in that field and you slowly but surely got into rare diseases. So why did you choose this specialization, Jean? As usual, life uh, takes us through paths that we <laughs> never know. Uh, they, they, they are drawn for us, I, I guess. So as I mentioned, I was um, I had this first experience with um, IMS and uh, and trying to support Alexion in in their launch of Eculizumab in in Spain. Then when I was uh, in Bayer and they were developing um, a drug for primary pulmonary hypertension. I said, hey, listen, I have uh, rare disease experience. Please <laughs> share with us your your ideas. And there were a couple of indications uh, also in, in Bayer and a couple of products they had back in the day for 
um, hepatocellular car uh, carcinoma and um, and renal cell carcinoma. And then I had the chance also to to join then Shire and uh, with all these uh, different experiences from that uh, past, then it was it was like uh, easy to then to take the baton at Shire to continue developing, or yeah, being part of the teams developing um, products uh, for people living with uh, rare diseases. And after Shire Takeda, then uh, I I went also to UCB also to work in rare diseases and now in Farvaris. It was not on purpose, but yes, life just uh, gave me the chance to, to support those teams and uh, that's how it happened. Rare diseases can be a quite broad category. So what diseases you are supporting these days, what keeps you busy in your daily job? So currently um, we are developing treatments for radicaining mediated angioedema. So it's like swelling that is caused by um, a specific uh, substance that is called bradykinin. It is considered a rare disease. And what's your job um, supporting this patient? What exactly you do in this program? It is worth saying that Favaris is uh, it's a startup environment, uh, Norbert, meaning that you have to wear many different hats every day. So I am um, I am responsible for all what has to do with uh, patient reported outcomes for the development of uh, of these programs, meaning that I advise what are the best way to capture benefits of the drug that are beyond controlling the swelling. So what is uh, the quality of life that the drug is providing to these patients? What is uh, What are the benefits in mental health? And then there is the integrated evidence generation plan. Because in a um, pharmaceutical company, different teams generate that. So uh, clinical development and cleanups, they develop all the data related to clinical trials. You have also the people in research generating data. You have uh, the people also working in HOR and health economics outcomes research and market access, generating evidence for the payers, for the healthcare systems. This clear need to align all these teams, align what are the research questions. I wouldn't say that is a Bible, but at least you have a document that summarizes all the efforts that a company is doing to generate data. And uh, the benefits of this is that, of course, you avoid the duplicities and that everyone is on the same page. I am responsible to lead all the efforts in terms of phase 3B studies, phase 4 studies, uh, plus all what has to do with um, value uh, substantiation, meaning uh, oftentimes you have to compare your product versus other products. Um, and uh, to do that formally, you have to perform what is called an indirect trading comparison. In, of course, in luck, if you don't have a head-to-head -head study, then you have to find a way to compare um, different products. And uh, it is uh, via this um, technique. I am responsible for any post hoc um, analysis that uh, you know um, market access may need. For instance, oftentimes, um, 
in the market access space, in the HTA space, you need to perform economic evaluations. And sometimes uh, you don't have one of the components of, of those economic evaluations, which is or undertake studies to generate those utilities. So you can actually ultimately perform the economic evaluation. You see that it is almost like a fruit salad. I mean, I, I have uh, my plate uh, full of colors, flavors, and, uh, uh, and yes, I am, I'm grateful. That is, that is fantastic. You, you mentioned many, many interesting points. And what captured my attention is the clinical evidence generation plan and knowing that it takes a lot of time and effort and investment to run these trials. I was just wondering that how do you select the key endpoints? And I understand that there is an alignment going on in many other functions, but how do you provide the initial endpoints? Ultimately, with the endpoint, what you aim is to show what is the actual benefit of your intervention of your drug um and and uh, of course it requires a lot of cross-functional alignment and discussions but also it is in principle a collaborative um discussion with the regulators in our particular case with fda ema pmda in japan and so on and so forth. you try to identify and and we have to remember that we have uh, a journey also for the right for a drug so you have your phase one you have your phase two so usually in the phase two is your chance to actually test different doses so you identify ideally the, the your effective dose ratio if you want of benefits and safety and uh, and also you test the different endpoints and then based on that then um as i mentioned uh with cross-functional delibera deliberations and with in agreement with the regulators then you propose your primary endpoint and with your primary endpoint then you calculate what is the sample size that you have to um to allocate in your trial for you to be able to show a meaningful result. The idea is that you have to perform the rank test procedure. There is a hi hierarchy in your secondary endpoints. So you start um, achieving the first one and only if you achieve the first one, then you pass on to the second one and you achieve it, then you pass on to your third one, and so on and so forth. The moment you don't achieve one of those secondary endpoints, then you stop. You cannot test the, the remaining ones. Very insightful, very interesting. And may I pick up on uh, your collaboration and um, outreach to regulators, to FDA, to EMEA. Can you tell more about uh, these uh, discussions, um, these submissions, how they run behind the scenes? I always have in mind a big room when there is a big table of the regulators and then the industry experts, and then they share different kind of like ideas and they try to get to the conclusion. How does that run in real life? I think that, uh, as usual, um, you cannot generalize. Sometimes uh, the interactions with the regulators are extremely fruitful, collaborative, and sometimes they are not. How it works is that um, sponsors a particular company um, developing 
products, you name it, devices or, or, or uh, medicines. Um, the sponsor requests some sort of, let's take the example of FDA. There are different uh, sorts of meetings, depending what is the topic that you aim to, to, uh, to discuss with, with FDA. So there are type A, type B, type C, type D meeting now, that is a new one. Uh, and, and depending what is the topics that you want to discuss, then you apply for one of those uh, different types of, of meetings. And then uh, th there are predefined timelines and regulations. Uh, so each of those um, different types of, of meetings have different timelines. So you request the meeting, then if they grant it, you have then to submit a briefing uh, document or a briefing book with the questions that you want the FDA to address, but you, it's not enough to only submit the question. You also have to put what is the already the position of the sponsor on that particular question. Um, so you can imagine that it is uh, actually a lot of work because uh, you already have to uh, to actually put in a very black and white what is the, the the idea that the sponsor has on a particular topic and then uh, once you submit that briefing book then fda has also some time to review the document and then to issue a response and uh, in principle they have everything they have to comply with with their own timelines uh, everything is intertwined that there are interdependencies all the time if the regulator has a delay, it means that will affect ultimately your development uh, timelines as well. Evidence generation is, is critical, showing all these uh, trials that they work and the drugs are safe and efficacious. What do you think? What's your impact? How do you contribute to the bigger patient well-being, John? I think that the the key differentiation between developing drugs for any disease and rare diseases is that in rare diseases, developers, sponsors, companies, we for real want to understand the people and you often hear that we don't refer to them as patients, but as people living with a particular disease. We bring, we are very cognizant of the human part of, of what we do, which we have to accept oftentimes is overlooked. That is the very first way in which we contribute to, to the health of people living with rare diseases is because we have people devoted to understand what is important to them. We have people working in, in development who are, um, they're not necessarily patient advocates, but they, they are people collecting insights from early, early, early in the development of, of drugs to really understand what is important to them and connecting to your previous question on, on endpoints to identify what could be the endpoints. What are those elements that are so important to them that may resonate also with the regulator because what is important for the patient is or maybe also important for the prescriber 
Correct. So you see that in the in the end, you triangle all this information. So I think that it is not at the very end when the drug is approved that companies have contributed to the health of people living with rare diseases, but it is also through that journey of understanding them, talking to them, and for them to feel that there is actual people in the private sector that are commercial organizations who are interested in understanding how they live with their diseases every day. So I think that that is also valuable and that contributes also for them to see that they're not alone. I think that that is how these companies contribute to the well-being of people with rare diseases. Very insightful and learning a lot. You are now supporting um, drugs and you work in the pharma industry. You had also a short tenure in diagnostics. How was this journey comparing diagnostics with uh, pharmaceuticals, if you still remember? First of all, I learned a lot when I had the chance to work for uh, Rush Diagnostics and, uh, and I'm super grateful. The biggest differences that I saw uh, were that uh, in pharma, we are most of the time concerned about the outcome that the intervention has on the patient on the health whereas what i noticed in in diagnostics is that the the emphasis was placed rather in the productivity of the laboratory so it was how to make the lab more efficient how to offer a wider portfolio of tests that can be performed in a shorter period of time and with a higher accuracy, which ultimately may also uh, have an effect, of course, but the effort was not placed in studying the effect on patients, but rather the effect on the lab. And, um, and that was probably one of the things that uh, with the team, we tried to also to sort of change that uh, that paradigm we invited the organization to to look into a different direction of course that is nothing that can be achieved overnight but i think that uh, yes we ignited a, a nice process and i'm sure that uh, that was already quite some time ago i am i am convinced that now they are already thinking of of those other elements as well Originally, you are from Colombia, and then uh, you went to Spain and then to Switzerland. How was your journey between many different cultures? I, I've grown so much through being exposed to different cultures. Um, when I went to Barcelona, I, I knew no one. I, I For real, it was like a leap of faith. Uh, the very first thing that I remember is when I had to fill in the, all the papers for the PhD, Universitat Pompeu Fabra, and, uh, and everything was in Catalan. And I had no idea that Catalan was the official language in Catalonia. And of course, I was like, mm, uh, there is something I am not getting here. It's not in Spanish, right? And and then that was the, the very, I still remember that moment. I, that was the, the first uh, quotation mark, big quotation mark in my head. And uh, then 
when I went there and I learned about all the the Catalan culture, I I just fell in love with with Catalonia and uh, I I learned uh, Catalan. I spoke Catalan on a daily basis. I felt really integrated. Um, and so what was um, the plan was to stay there two years for a PhD and then go back to Bogota in Colombia. And then in the end, it was uh, 11 years that I spent in, in, in Barcelona um, growing uh, from a professional perspective, but also, you know, getting exposed to all this breadth of, of different uh, culture because within Spain, and I'm afraid that that is not um showcased in the in in the proper way but it is so 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 it's so rich in cultures and and differences uh, across uh, regions it's it's uh, beautiful and then after uh Roche offered me the the possibility to come to switzerland uh yes of course that was another another big shock because coming from, so when I went from Bogota to Barcelona, for me, that was already like, I reduced the speed of everything by five uh, times, five X, let's say. The moment I came from Barcelona to, to Switzerland, that was another uh, handbrake. Uh, everything was at a different pace once more. So um, at the beginning, it was difficult, um, of course, uh, uh, like for many others, uh, getting used to having um, the supermarkets closed at seven, uh, nothing is open on Sunday. So I, I, at the beginning, all the, the downsides uh, is what is, uh, you know, highlighted. But then you also start to, to see the highlights and the, and the upsides. Um, in terms of how well you can organize yourself because everything works. Uh, the trains are always on time or most of the times are on time. Um, how easy it is uh, actually to, to interact with, uh, with certain uh, parts of the administration, of the public administration. Um, the certainty that you have on, on most things like uh, your taxes and, and everything. So. Um, yeah, the, and and the most important at the end of the day uh, is the country itself. So it's it's the environment. It's uh, how beautiful Switzerland is, and how easy it is to actually uh, go and you know take a stroll and enjoy nature and enjoy all what this country has to offer. So. Um, and and also, of course, I, I'm not uh, you know hovering over uh people of course uh it's that is also a very important element uh, in switzerland it is uh, a melting pot so here you also meet people from all over um uh, all over the world and and that also enriches every you know every part of, of your interaction with with uh, with colleagues uh, with acquaintances with friends um and so i i can only say norbert that um going to different places, exposing yourself to different uh, cultural backgrounds, environments is is really, really what makes you, you get rid of prejudices easily. And that is, that is very important. So you don't give for granted things, but actually you get to know 
how people think, what are their, you know, drivers, what are their, their stopping rules and so on and so forth. That is super enriching. Where is home to you these days? Home is where my heart is and, uh, and my heart is in Switzerland and Norbert. So yes, this is home. What do you think that, that what makes a successful team and then um, also uh, probably we have right now many different uh, generations uh, working together. Do you see here a shift in, in team dynamics and then how you can deal with that? Uh, that, is, that is quite personal, Norbert. I think that for me, a successful um, leadership is a blend of different things. It's a blend of uh, trust. It's a blend of uh, trust with transparency. Um, it is about giving to your team a clear, bigger picture of what is our ultimate goal, but also thinking about what are their particular interests and what is in them. <laughs> so it's about marrying, if you want. It's about coupling the goal of the team, the goal of the organization with their personal goals. And, and so you can, you have to understand what is the way each person in your team, what, what is their thinking? What is their understanding of the universe if you want? Because if you don't understand how they think, it is very, it, it is going to be very difficult for you to actually connect their um, motivation to what you expect from them. So I think that a good leader is someone who understands the members of, of his or, or her team and, and amplifies their capabilities, their skills, and who is able to connect the aim of the organization, the team with their personal aim. I'm not sure that all leaders are willing to make that effort because that requires that you are at the service of the team. And sometimes leaders think that they are in a position where they just demand. Uh, organization would work uh, way better if we had mindful kindness and uh, leaders who are willing to serve others. Very wise. I'm always learning a lot. And speaking of learning and maybe good advice, what advice you would give to the next generation who are looking for jobs in the life science industry, who would like to get into these big companies, or you know, just uh, would like to transition from academia over to industry? What would be your advice to them? If you have a chance to to make it to the pharmaceutical industry, just take it. Uh, learn and then and then grow and then grow. I think that that is the there there is no perfect path to to where you think is your actual place. I think that um, the best way to actually get somewhere is is simply take if you have a primer in a path, just start the path. Don't don't overthink about the future. The path will be, you know, drawn, will be created little by little. So don't, 
don't start already no because i am not in that position where i uh, i wanted yes but today you can be here so start being here so it has to do also with um when we're young we we want we want all we want to be uh already you know uh we have we were thirsty we're we're hungry but the reality is that we need to learn and 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 we have to be ready to embrace the responsibilities at due time there is no need to rush things so i think that my advice to 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 you know to younger youngsters is just take take the, the, the opportunity and little by little you will define um your path and and you will ultimately you will get where you want but don't rush before running you have to crawl you have to you know so yes little by little little by little and enjoy the ride enjoy the process and the ride is what actually matters so yeah that would be my advice to youngsters it starts with the first step. Joab, thank you very much for volunteering for this pilot episode. I really enjoyed the discussion. And then a uh, big thank you again for making it happen. Thanks, Norbert. It is always amazing talking to you, discussing things. Uh, is is always uh, a real joy. So thank you. Thank you very much. I hope you have enjoyed another episode of Care Captains. See you next week.